it's kind of my bag. It's a family bag. But, uh, it's not my usual everyday handbag. Don't mind me. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? Bill can't hear me. Is this thing on? Hello. Yell into the mic. The what now? I don't wear that one. <laughs> no. I usually use this guy. I don't know how this thing works. I'm not capable of this. little things in life. Anyway, good morning. I'll try that again. Is everybody hearing me now? Is that better? All right. Thank you. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Philippians chapter 3, starting today. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, as always, for your word. We pray that you would help us to listen to it carefully and to hear what it has to say, Lord, and that these words would not be from me, Lord, that they would point towards you and what you are saying to us. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you would give us today. We pray in Jesus' name. When I went to Westminster some years back, I, I only took a single preaching class, and I also nearly failed a communications class at Penn State, but no matter. I mean, why not go into speaking, right? Um, I had a wonderful uh, professor at Westminster in Tim Whitmer, uh, who's currently pastoring somewhere out near Lancaster, I think, and uh, he taught several lessons that have stuck with me. Uh, he said to always make Jesus the center of your sermon, make sure you point to the cross at some point. Don't use so many texts uh, that you make the congregation dizzy, turning pages. Uh, and he also said to be very careful not to list your points out, because as soon as you say, on my final point, 
you're effectively setting a timer on yourself and on people's patience. And if a closing prayer doesn't commence within five minutes of that final point, you're teasing the congregation because they already started planning lunch at that point. So don't go announcing it. But the Apostle Paul obviously didn't take Dr. Whitmer's class, so he didn't know any better. He starts off chapter 3 with, finally, my brothers, when he's really only halfway through the letter. Uh, in fact, he has several more points to make, but that's okay. That's why your pastors, in their wisdom, broke this letter down a bit further, so you can thank them for allowing me to stop at verse 11 today, so you can all have lunch as originally scheduled. Otherwise, Paul could have kept us here all afternoon. But in fairness to Paul, one doesn't need to translate this word as finally, and not everybody has. The NIV has it as further, and other translations handle it other ways. But Paul is certainly entering a different level of emphasis here. He is, as he says, repeating himself. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble, which in essence means this entire passage is something he's already covered with them before, in person or else in a letter we don't have anymore. But what he's issuing here is a warning followed by a cautionary tale. He's been mostly positive with the Philippians so far. He's been affirming and encouraging them. But now he issues his first serious warning that there's a danger they need to be aware of. And interestingly, he starts off by urging the Philippians to rejoice. Uh, not every warning starts with such an uplifting thought. I usually save encouragement for after threats, but that's just me. Um, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. I think it's an invitation to hope in spite of danger. We do have security in Christ, and Paul wants to assure his readers that even while danger persists, we can have joy in the face of it. It sort of echoes uh, Psalm 23, that he prepares a table before my enemies. And Paul also helpfully lets us know that he doesn't mind repeating himself. He's okay with doing that. And, you know, you can almost picture the Philippians saying, you know, that, that's okay, Paul, we, we've heard it, we got it, it's all right. And Paul says, no, no, I don't mind repeating myself. It's okay. Uh, because repetition costs him very little, and it's not going to hurt the Philippians a bit. It's like practicing scales when you learn an instrument. That might be boring, but it gives you the tools you need to play effectively. Repetition gets stuff into our heads, and that's the beauty of catechisms and creeds and the Lord's Prayer, for that matter. It gets good theology stuck in our heads. Uh, I've sometimes worried that if I enter full-time ministry, I will inevitably start repeating myself. I'm going to start telling the same jokes and the same stories along with the same gospel, and someone might catch on and say, you know, I think he used that particular anecdote last year at Christmas time, and, you know. Um, but this is an encouraging reminder from Paul that that's okay, as long as it's stuff that's worth repeating. That's debatable in my case, but... So rejoice in the Lord. One may ask how we practically rejoice while also looking out for dogs. That's the essence of Paul's warning in verse 2. Reading that again, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, and rejoice. Um, that's not the usual language we encourage believers to use about other people. We don't usually call people dogs in church. Um, that's kind of archaic. It's still a pretty universal insult. Even today, it's common insult to call someone a canine of the female persuasion, let the reader understand um, so I've tried in vain to discover another way that we could look at this dogs thing, but it turns out that kunas in Greek neither means more nor less than dogs. Uh, even the New Living Translation gives it that way. Heck, even the message says barking dogs, and that's not even a legit Bible. If any Bible paraphrase would try to soften the blow, it would be the message, but it's right there, you know. So it's really hard to see this as anything but a pretty serious insult from Paul. 
It's not particularly polite or genteel even. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, butchers. Paul's not very subtle. Why? Why is that? Why does Paul, who commands us to love, left and right and all over the place, reserve such ugly words for these guys? I think it's because false teaching is not harmless. False teaching does real spiritual harm to believers. It creates doubts and false hopes and sinful living, and it distracts from the real gospel. Uh, The Christian faith is not merely a mental or an intellectual game, but when our doctrines get corrupted, everything else follows because we live according to what we really believe. And if right belief gets undermined, then our false faith will eventually become false faith in action, in practice. Our behavior will eventually reflect the heresies and lies we've come to believe about God and his son and the gospel. So on one hand, Paul will tell us not to get caught up in debates over obscure genealogies and stuff. That's stupid. But on the other hand, when the core of the gospel is threatened, Paul becomes savage. Because now we're talking spiritual life and death. Right doctrine is critical, and it's a hill Paul's willing to die on. Get the doctrine right and keep a sharp eye out for those who are getting it wrong, because they're not just misguided, but dangerous, and they'll cripple the church. So what is this false teaching Paul is so worried about? Well... It regards circumcision, my favorite sermon topic of all time. I could preach all day on circumcision. How many people here know what circumcision is? All right, that's about half of you there. All right, you asked for it, you other guys. So every uh, boy is born with boy parts. And contrary to what kids are taught in schools these days, uh, there's an excess of skin that's unnecessary on the male organ, and uh, it was a covenant sign in the Old Testament to remove this bit of skin. It's how you were set apart at birth. It was an outward sign that you belonged to the Lord. So every Israelite boy was circumcised on the eighth day, even Jesus himself. And nowadays, uh, they do it in hospitals. It's done more for cleanliness. Not everybody gets it done. I've heard that the statistics say the West Coast doesn't hardly do it anymore, but they do on the East Coast. Whatever. It's more of a cultural marker than, than anything in that sense. But conveniently, God in his providence has provided a new symbol in baptism. And that is how we mark our children as partakers of the covenant today. It's a lot less bloody. Um, I have to laugh when I see babies crying at their baptism. It's just like, really? That's something to cry about? You want the Old Testament option? I'll give you something to cry about. Let's go. But what was happening in Paul's day was that you had some Jewish believers who were convinced that you still needed to be circumcised to be a Christian. It might have been some of the Gentile believers, too. Um, This would be quite a hurdle, uh, especially for an adult man. Um, Babies kind of bounce back from circumcision. Adults, not so much. Um, Those who thought this way were called Judaizers. Uh, You had to essentially become Jewish to become a Christian. Now, this was the view of Jews and Gentiles, uh, some in in Christian circles. And it's not so surprising. The church had started as a Jewish sect, primarily. Its culture and background were Jewish. Some even of the Gentile converts were probably partly drawn by a love for Jewish culture. So it seemed obvious to them that this was an intrinsic part of following Jesus, was to be Jewish. They were trying to keep Christianity Jewish. So what's the harm in that? Well, Paul's going to explain this in some detail because the issue is ultimately much bigger than circumcision. The real issue is where we place our confidence. The Judaizers have come up with a very reasonable and holy-sounding reason to put confidence in something within ourselves rather than in Christ. 
And this puts Paul on the warpath. It's an issue so important that it bears constant repetition. We don't even get the impression that this is a predominant problem in Philippi necessarily, but just in case some traveling salesman comes along with a fancy surgical set of scissors, Paul wants the Philippian church to be ready to run him out of town. So what's the essence of Paul's argument? He gives it in abbreviated form in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. How about that for a title? You know, some pastors address their congregation as beloved or you know, brethren, brother and sisters. The circumcision is not quite as common um, as in like dearly circumcised, we are gathered together in the sight of God. Like, you know, we don't typically do that. I think John should give it a try. I'm going to send him an email, change of pace, you know. Now, that would seem silly if it were only about circumcision, but like I said, it's more than that. Paul is saying that if we are in Christ, everything symbolized by circumcision is already ours. We worship in spirit, and we glory in Christ Jesus. And if we glory in Christ Jesus, there's no place for confidence in anything else. And if we add works to his work, we're saying that his work is insufficient. So why would we put any confidence in ourselves and our flesh? It seems obvious that we aren't very reliable. No one knows this better than we do ourselves, and yet we all do it. Partly because it's easier to wear a badge of righteousness than to actually be righteous. Getting circumcised or baptized is something we can handle. Any boy can be circumcised. Anyone can get baptized. You can change your appearance easier than your heart. And in that sense, we can make baptism into a similar problem. I, I've known many people, and maybe you have too, especially from Catholic faiths where, where the baptism is actually salvific in their, their church, uh, that they walk away from the church and from faith, but they put their confidence in their baptism. They still regard themselves as, as Catholic to the, to the end of their days. It's a false assurance. But I, I think that the problem is not that the Judaizers are making it harder to become Christians per se. It's that they are making salvation partially into something we have to do instead of something we receive. They're setting forth a prerequisite for faith that could easily replace faith entirely, a sign of devotion we could claim credit for, divorced from Christ's work, something we do. Now, Paul knew that symbols are powerful, and the Jewish ordinance of circumcision was, after all, biblical, even. These things are commanded in the Old Testament, just, but, but just as blood sacrifices have been superseded by Jesus' death on the cross, so circumcision has to be seen as an outdated sign, one that pointed forward to Christ but is no longer necessary. There's no longer any need for further bloodshed in the new covenant, not for animals, not from us. All the blood that was necessary was shed at Calvary. Circumcision was right in the Old Testament, but since Christ came, all it does is it really just keeps the law alive, the ceremonial law particularly, and it becomes a work of extra credit on top of what Christ has already done. It adds to his work. But Paul knows that the natural tendency of man is to trust in the flesh, and old habits die hard. So what was once a legitimate sign and symbol in the Old Testament would become a stumbling block in the church age, a source of pride and identity rather than the outward sign of an inward reality, that we would let outward, outdated signs be a substitute for real communion with Christ. We may not put faith in circumcision, but we have plenty of other ways of trusting in the flesh. And Paul wants to demonstrate how ridiculous this is, and he uses himself as an example. Uh, according to Paul, no one could play that game better than he could. He's the real deal. And he gives a, comp a comprehensive list of his credits in verses 4 to 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What's Paul doing here? He's giving us four categories of self-confidence where he excelled at one time, things he could brag about if he wanted to, things that make him better than other people. He talks about his family and heritage. He talks about his party affiliation. He talks about his accomplishments, and then he talks about his reputation. What about his family? First, Paul points to his family heritage. He, he talks about his circumcision. You were circumcised? I can do better than that. No Gentile in the world is going to out-Jew Paul, okay? He was circumcised, you know, eighth day, died in the wool Israelite, tribal heritage as a Benjamite. That means he has a tangible homeland. He's named after Saul originally, Israel's first king. He's got real, you know real bona fides. He didn't adopt Judaism as a fad. He's lived and breathed it since his childhood. He's no latecomer like Rod Carew and Sammy Davis. He didn't just marry into it. He came by it the old-fashioned way. He inherited this. He's got righteousness by pedigree. Next, Paul starts talking about his party affiliation. He reminds his readers that he was a Pharisee. And this means he associated with the right sorts of people. He was a sort of righteousness by association. He was in the right club, the right school of thought, the right denomination, the right political party. Then he lists his accomplishments. He turns to his zealous achievements. See, he wasn't just born into it, and he didn't just simply join the club. He was a leader. He isn't satisfied with mere affiliation. He didn't want to just have a cup of coffee with the big leagues. You know, he wants to be on the roster and make a name for himself, and quick. Acts 7 specifies that he was a young man at the stoning of Stephen, and when he started persecuting, he was hateful of the church, very ambitious and youthful and energetic. He actually did stuff. And granted, his main achievement he gives is persecution of the church, but this was really going above and beyond in his old Jewish circles. Anyone could be a Pharisee, an armchair quarterback about how the Christians are ruining everything. Paul wanted to do something about it, so he set out to physically arrest them. Now, Paul wasn't just a typical Jewish Pharisee. He was a gold star achiever, too, see? But then he turns to reputation, his stellar law-keeping. And this is important because being an overachiever and a partisan doesn't necessarily say anything about your character. Plenty of zealots are more like Samson, you know. He may be on your team, but that doesn't make him a good man a lot of the time. In fact, he might be kind of a dirtbag, you know. It's like when the U.S., uh, our nation, uh, we were allied with the Soviet Union in World War II for good reason. And they were allies and they were zealots, but they were not good guys, you know. You can have a great resume full of achievements and awards, but if you're kind of a sleazebag, you likely don't get the job unless it's a sleazy business or employer. So Paul feels it's necessary to point out that he was, in fact, a moral man on top of it all. He observed all the Old Testament laws, and nobody would have claimed otherwise. He had a good reputation. Nobody would call him sleazy. His word probably carried weight with Jewish leadership. He was an upstanding man. Okay, so Paul had a lot going for him. But I hear his list, and I think one of two things. I think, first of all, I certainly don't boast in such things. It's my defensive posture. I would never brag about my background like that. And then I turn on a dime and say, and actually, you know, it's a pretty good skill set that would make a guy like Paul very useful to the kingdom. He'll be great at reaching his fellow Jews and Pharisees. God could use a guy like that. What's so wrong with putting some stock in your family and friends and achievements? Aren't we supposed to be obedient to the law? You know, we don't like to be thought of as braggarts, but we do have some pretty cool stuff to offer God. And he should seriously think about recruiting guys like us, you know? 
Now, I put confidence in a lot of stupid stuff in those very same categories, and maybe you'll be able to relate. I thought about family, you know, and sure, I, I brag about my family and my heritage. I mean, and if Paul bragged about his circumcision, I got baptized by Jim Boyce. <laughs> Beat that, you know. Uh, we recently f found out, and I've been doing some research, I have a great-great-great-grandfather who was a Methodist minister all over rural Pennsylvania. He was in all kinds of different towns, and so I think to myself, see, ministry's in my blood. You know, seven generations removed, but there it is, you know. I even take a perverse pride in the Italian side because we have some mobsters on that side, and that makes me sound gritty and authentic. And authenticity is a huge issue for my generation. We work hard on our authentic image. Yeah. Um, I brag in my hometown. Um, I went to Penn State, and I would ask kids that I was working with, you know, where they were from. I'm like, oh, I'm from Philly. Oh, yeah, whereabouts in Philly? Oh, actually, I live in, and fill in the blank. It could be anywhere from, like, Lancaster to South Jersey, but it would be somewhere in the suburbs, and it would not be in the city of Philadelphia. And me, I took this obnoxious pride in living within the city limits. I'm a real Philadelphian, unlike all you posers. Heck, I'll go one better. I'm a true Alneyite, and that gave me serious street cred. And, you know, people would be here like, wait, isn't that where that shooting happened? Yeah, it's the Wild West up in my neck of the woods. <laughs> Gotta watch your step. I am so authentic. God could use a real city guy like me. Then I think about party affiliation. And Paul boasted in his status as a Pharisee. And I don't think anybody would make that mistake again. Pharisee is sort of a, a bad word. But, you know, we, we have our own clubs. Uh, probably very few of us here would boast in our political affiliation. At least I hope not. Any proud Democrats or Republicans here that are really just proud of that affiliation? Green partiers? Libertarians? Any Whigs? Millard Fillmore fans? No? Couldn't hurt to ask. I don't know. Uh, I confess, I'm a weirdo. Uh, I have been guilty of that. Uh, <laughs> I like having outsider status. So in high school, I got to be the most famous Republican there. And I kind of liked the notoriety and the infamy of it all. As an interesting aside, I had not a single date in high school. Um, I wasn't good at sports or the arts. I needed something to stand out. That apparently didn't work. Um, now, a handful of you might boast in your church denominational affiliation. How many of you are proud Presbyterians? I am sometimes. You know, depends on the week. Um, uh, how many of you have, like, have you seen the new PCO logo they came out with last year for our denomination? And a lot of people were making fun online because it looks like the, uh, the bounty hunter from, uh, from Star Wars. It's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> anyway, I was thinking I should get a sticker like that for my van, but maybe not many of us are all that proud of being PCA people or anything like that. Um, but we find other ways of putting confidence in the company we keep here at New Life, I think. We have a sort of collective self-righteousness rooted in the fact that we are not the beautiful people. I think I, I kind of like being part of New Life because it's in a rough area. I think we wear it as a badge of honor that we're doing real city ministry. I think we take pride in our diversity, and I think even our programs can become a sort of badge of righteousness. And if I'm honest, I kind of look down on suburban churches is what ends up happening. You know, they're a little too clean cut for my taste. You know, the carpets are too clean. You know, they have it easy. I think we even take some pride in this mess of a building. I mean, look at this dump, right? I mean, <laughs> the place is falling apart. And the chairs? What chairs? Exactly. I can't even sit my family in a consecutive row. It doesn't work anymore. 
I went and heard Terry Trailer speak. He was the late pastor of New Life Glenside, passed away a couple of years ago, and he was talking about that, and uh, he called this ugly building righteousness, a self-righteous false humility that comes from meeting in a dump. And he was referring to his own building, and, and Glenside meets in an old catering hall. I, don't, I shudder to think what he would think of this place. I can't, even, I can't even envision. And by the way, it's not too late to combat ugly building righteousness in your community by giving to the Pew Replacement Fund. If somebody wants to <laughs> talk to Tim Wanaselia, I think is in charge of that effort. But we, we kind of like that, don't we? I, I confess, I have a sort of pride in being a member here because I like being from the gritty church that's fighting the odds. It gives us that air of authenticity. God could use an authentic church like mine. Well, what about achievements? Paul had his persecution under his belt. Uh, has my zeal produced outstanding feats that I can put confidence in? And, and that's where I get to my props, see? These are, these are some knickknacks I've earned over time, see, to boost my self-esteem. I, uh, as I mix it up in my wires here, see, this here, this, this is my team sportsmanship award that I got at OMTL over there at uh, Hammond and Nidro. Uh, because even even lousy players can have a good attitude, see? And, and that's, that's nice. It was nice of them to give that to me. I'm proud of that, you know? This here, this is my, uh, my good citizenship award from the Daughters of the American Revolution. Um, that was the first time I'd ever heard of that organization was when I got this. Um, I'm still not sure how I got it, but it came with a free luncheon, so that's kind of cool, see? That's nice. This here, this is my, my student employee of the month for the December of, of 2005 when I worked up at Penn State in the kitchens. Now, I like to think I earned this many times over in the two years I was working there, uh, but they waited until I was graduating to throw me a bone. Um, but even without cheap plaques, I, I think we all have some achievements that we put confidence in. They're testaments. These here, these are testaments. These are testaments to my hard work, my patriotism, and my all-around nice guyness, my likability. I think they prove my worth, see. Okay, maybe not, but I, I keep a mental list and resume that's much longer than that. My head, my mental trophy room is full, see. And it could be my education, degrees, certifications, experiences, titles, or maybe things I've built or maybe my family, my kids. I mean, we all have achievements we can boast in. We call them resume fillers, you know. Well, then Paul talks about reputation. And, and the holier among us are tempted to put confidence in our own law-keeping. If we're faithful husbands and wives, if we never swear and we go to church every week and we're good parents, or even if we're just slightly better than the average, uh, you just know that you would be useful to God. Because you barely need any work to begin with. It'll be nice for him, since so much of the work is already done. Send the spirit. I'm moving ready, you know. Now, I think we all do a little of this, at least in the silence of our minds. We may have to compare ourselves to some pretty messy characters to get there. But I think I can say with confidence that we all know at least somebody who's worse than us, right? And that means we can all consider ourselves relatively righteous before God. Maybe blameless is a strong word, but we do sort of feel like God shouldn't blame us for falling short. Now, not all these things are bad in themselves. Your family history, your church membership, your accomplishments, your reputation, these are all things that make up who you are. 
Uh, God has gifted you with many of these things, and these experiences can become useful tools in his hand, and, and that's fine. But make no mistake, God did not recruit Paul because of his credentials. And he did not call you because of how awesome you are. This stuff here is crap in his sight. Paul calls them a loss, rubbish. I'm going to read the rest of this again. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, we don't really need false teachers to come and tell us how awesome we are. Uh, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of self-esteem preachers out there, but they thrive because we are an audience hungry for this trash. We want to believe that we have something good in us, something we can do to add to what Christ can give us, something within ourselves that we can put our confidence in. And we don't think of it as saving ourselves with our works. We just think we can add some works to God's grace. We think we can bring our resume to the cross and God will be glad to see it and look it over. Paul tells us to look out for dogs who focus on personal internal self-righteousness, but we all have a little of that dog in us. We're all building our own righteousness resumes, quietly putting confidence in our own backgrounds and experience and knowledge and authenticity. And then we take that resume into the church and we wonder why our brilliance doesn't change things and why our ministry and prayer life are flat and the spirit doesn't seem to be moving. And Paul gives answers to this foolish way of thinking and they are Christ, Christ, and more Christ. Lose it all for Christ, he says, because none of what you have to offer is worth a scrap to him. Know Christ, he says in verses 8 and 10, and you will know the power of his resurrection. Gain Christ, he says, and you will be found in him. Put your faith in Christ, and you will be righteous in him. Glory in Christ, and you will place no confidence in yourself. And rejoice in Christ, because there can be no joy apart from Christ. At every point, Paul turns our attention away from ourselves and back to the Savior. He wants us so fixated on him, wrapped up in him, united with him, so that we can follow his footsteps, not just the suffering and death, but the resurrection and glory. Jesus is not impressed by your spiritual resume. He did not recruit you because you had some worth in yourself. He did not look at you and see huge potential. You can't give him anything because you have nothing worth offering. You contribute nothing to your salvation. You must come empty-handed before him. All your credentials are just baggage that will keep you from him. That's why the false teachers and self-help gospels must be crushed. So that the grace of Christ will shine forth, unhindered by the stubborn and stupid self-confidence that we cling to. Not one thing within you can contribute to your salvation. Your only hope is to be united to Christ in his suffering, death, and resurrection. And that is his work alone. When Paul met Jesus, his resume was tailor-made for Jewish ministry, uh, you would think. That's what he knew best, that's where he came from, and that's who he looked like. 
But God didn't send Paul to the Jews with his resume. He sent him to the Gentiles with Jesus. He sent him where his resume would be useless and where he had nothing to offer but the gospel and only Jesus to lean on. So stop burnishing your credentials and burn them instead. Because it ain't about you. Your family, your friends, your achievements, and your personal holiness. Ask him to destroy all those idols that are in your heart that you're holding on to. And when nothing is left, he will work with the nothing. Who saves? Who saves? Amen. You guys are paying attention. That's good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good. And you have everything that we need, Lord, and we have really nothing to offer you. I pray that you would help us because we are by nature a self-confident people. I pray that you would search us and know us, Lord. Know what things we cling to, Lord, that try to add to your work. And destroy those things in us, Lord. Help us to kick them to the curb and come to you empty-handed. We pray these things in Jesus' name.